I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Judges. And while you're doing so, I'm going to turn this around so my Bible doesn't fall off in the floor. The lip on it is necessary for that purpose. There we go. I didn't think I could get away with doing that without your notice, so I might as well just give you a play-by-play. But we're looking in the book of Judges, and today is chapter 16. And this is going to be the last chapter that covers the story of Samson. And Samson being the better known or most familiar story of the book of Judges, this is going to draw his story to a conclusion. And where we're going to begin reading is one of those passages that almost sound like some type of a report or a write-up. It's not favorable. Uh, It's not what we necessarily would want to hear. And uh, it begins what will end in a disaster as far as Samson's personal record. But at the same time, there's an unexpected ending. And his creator, same as ours, is going to receive glory in a way that we perhaps don't see so often because perhaps we're not looking for it in passages like this. But let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 16, the book of Judges. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute. He went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. They surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Verse 4, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. This is God's word. Let's ask his help to understand and obey it. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of scripture, chapter 16 of the book of Judges. We understand it to be your inspired word. And in fitting with what we learn in the New Testament, that it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. So that we may be well furnished, well fit for what it is you've got for us to do. Lord, gather our attention and calm our distractions. Help us to think. And in that way we may learn. And Lord, we'll praise you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, the first woman of two 
in chapter 16 is a prostitute. And by the way the sentence is put together, uh, it's easy enough to see it in English, that it doesn't seem at all that she was the reason for his being in Gaza. It just seems that when he saw her, he decided to spend the night. Better question is, what is he doing in Gaza? It's been about 20 years, that's the best guess, since he killed 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey we studied last week. At the end of that section, he judged Israel 20 years. At the end of this section, he had then judged Israel for 20 years. So if he got all of this out of his system, it seems this is a relapse perhaps. But this is further into Philistine territory than we've seen him yet. And it's about as far as he can be from his home. He's almost to the coast, deep into uh, the Philistine territory here. An ambush is organized, we're told, while he is with this temporary companion. And plans are made to kill him at first light. But he gets up at midnight. He leaves this temporary companion in bed longer or less amount of time than they expected. He gets up and instead of breaking the gate down, he carries the gate away. And it's described as a monstrosity of a gate with posts and doors and a bar. And then he puts these on his back and takes them to a hill across from Hebron. You say, okay, that's 35 miles away. And he's leaving the coastal plains headed for a mountain that's about a thousand feet above sea level. And it might be at this point where you're saying, all right, 300 foxes, tails tied together. That's one thing. A thousand men with a donkey's jawbone. That's another thing. Carrying a city gate 35 miles uphill. It's getting hard to stick in there with you. This sounds ridiculous. This is basically a miracle, right? Yeah. Same as killing a lion with your bare hands. And knocking a building down. Having a boy taking you to the pillars. out, Eyes gouged out. All of this is miraculous. We see the spirit of God on this man like no other one. It rushes on him. And he's able to do these things. That couldn't be explained otherwise. The point of it all. That makes it so hard to digest. Is it looks as if this is all. His personal vendetta. Or something like that. It's just not the way we'd expect to see the Lord move. It sounds odd because it is odd. But that doesn't mean that it isn't exactly what God had planned and purposed for this man. Who we know as Samson. And then there's Delilah. We meet her in this chapter. She happens to be the only woman mentioned in the whole story that has a name. We don't know his mother's name. We don't know his wife's name. We don't know the prostitute's name. But we know Delilah's name. And we know her so well, no one ever names their daughter Delilah. Except for a radio host who takes that name, so you'll listen. But what we've got to try to determine here, and there's questions that we'll ask that we'll likely not get answers for. But is it his love for this woman that blinds him to this obvious trap that she sets for him in collusion with the Philistines? What's, what's very different is how the first paragraph has to do with a prostitute. One night, 
where the next paragraph has to do with a woman he says he loves. That's new. This loner has now found someone he wants to be with. And the tragic part of it is she's sold him out for a pile of money and he has no idea. So is it that? Does he trust her? Does he think he's just got everything under control like he has every other time? And then he's more reckless than he's ever been 20 years from the last episode? Again, we, we can't answer these questions. We just have what we've got to work with and we make the best of it. Either way, it's game over in this chapter. And by the time she's done with him, he is absolutely useless temporarily for the work God has chosen for him to do. And I think the saddest part of the whole story is when the record tells us he didn't even know that the Spirit of God had left him. That's a sad spot. And we may have been in that position before on a personal level. Everything's great. But the Lord's not there. Churches can go on past that. and In an area like this, people moving in, and church being good business in America, all you've got to do is invite them to things they're interested in and send them home feeling good about themselves, and they'll pay well for that. Not to mention at all whether or not the Lord's hand is actually on that ministry, or on that home, or on that business. There's a lot we've got to learn from this as well. Most of us know this story if we don't know anything else about Judges. And uh, I think the best way to start with this is a little less explanation because we've got a background here. And just start asking those questions. We'll see which ones we get answers to. And the ones that we don't, it's probably meant to be that we don't have the answer to that question. But why is this story in the record of Judges? That'd be a good place to start. I would want to leave this out, especially if I was Samson. Uh, If I was Israel's historian, these stories aren't flattering. And why this specific one? Why did Israel need to keep this in their historical archives? And why do we as a church, millennia removed from it, need this? What is this saying to us? Of what use is it? Well... We've been talking for a number of weeks here, and we're going to make a transition from what we've been talking about and take it a step further and apply it to ourselves. But we've been working on the idea that all this, even the chapters to come, which are worse than what we're reading this morning, are meant to be a a giant mirror to the children of Israel, to show them themselves, their own reflection. And today we're going to take a shot at doing the same. We'll use it like a mirror too. See if we see our reflection. And I'm going to go with, with this guess. That of all the book of Judges, Samson's the one where we're going to see the most resemblance. You be the judge of that. You're smart people. You have your Bibles in front of you. You have a brain God gave you. We'll think through this. And we'll pray and we'll ask the Lord to show us what's here. Perhaps like nowhere else, we're going to see that reflection more clearly. But as far as Israel goes, we'll just work on them for a while, then we'll work on ourselves. How is it that this is supposed to be a mirror, and specifically Samson? Well, Samson was raised out of nothing, right? So was Israel. Samson was richly gifted. So was Israel. But he played around with other love interests. 
so had Israel. All the while expecting that God was right there where he left him. And so had Israel. Having been blessed beyond measure, Israel carries on her affairs with the gods and idols of Canaan. Completely oblivious to the fact that God's spirit may have left her. And we'll read later in the New Testament that 400 years of silence where the Spirit of God actually lifts off the Ark of the Covenant down through the Kidron Valley into the sky and isn't seen again until John the Baptist introduces the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Actually, there was a sneak peek before that when he was baptized. I heard the voice of God. But there'd been silence. Well, they're getting very close to this here. Not yet, but it looks as if it's coming. So what about the church today? I already kind of mentioned that. Uh, Do we ever resemble Israel in that way? Blessed? Raised out of nothing? Messing around with other interests? Perhaps. Let's keep moving. Chapter 16 is where Samson's trouble catches up with him. We'll go back to the text here in a moment in verse 6. But here's the game plan. This is a pitiful story. And again, with an unexpected outcome, we'll save till the end. But we're looking or taking a final look at Samson and his story. And we're going to take a look into that mirror and see if we see anything in Samson in ourselves. But here's what I want you to use to guide your thinking process. Oswald Chambers once said... That it's not always true that the Lord wants you to learn something through trial or trouble or your own mistakes. And when I read the first half of that sentence, I said, wait a minute, I'm always telling people. When you're hurting, pay attention, God probably has something for you to learn. But then he says in the second part of the sentence, sometimes he wants you to unlearn something. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but I liked it when I read it. Because sometimes we make assumptions. We think we've got stories we know really well in the Bible uh, under our belt. We know what this means. And we know that Samson's got a problem and we don't. So that's for somebody else. Well, maybe this is a process in unlearning something. Samson's going to unlearn some things here. And maybe us too. So let's look at halfway through verse 6 where... Delilah begins to ask this question, and it's shocking how open she is and how well she's read this man, because with me, this would never work. If someone wants to rob me, they don't come into my house and say, hey, where's your safe and what's the combination? (laughs) But for somebody, that might be exactly the game they'd like to play. Well, why don't you come on in and I'll show you where my safe is. I'll let you turn the dial, maybe put your ear up on the door or something like that. That's how Samson is. He's a master of brinkmanship. You know what brinkmanship is? That's where you dance on the edge of a big old chasm and hope that you never fall off. Well, that's what he's doing. And he gets closer with each step. And we won't read through the whole thing. You know what it is. But let's just get started. Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. If I was going to do you in, Samson, how would I do it? Samson said to her, if they bind me, he says they, so he knows what's going on, with seven fresh bowstrings. Any of you archers or hunters, you have synthetic bowstrings these days, but they were made out of gut, 
before and they had to be dried. Not unlike uh, the snares under the bottom of a snare marching drum. And they're very tough when they're dried, but they're weak when they're wet. So it makes, it doesn't make sense. Well, he's playing a game here. So she does it. Um, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried. She bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. That's behind the scenes. She said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson! Exclamation point. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So he hasn't fallen off the cliff yet. But she's quite angry with him. And every time she says, you've mocked me. At the end she says, you don't love me. But the first round of this game they're playing is basically identical to every one of the others. There are four altogether. Aside from the specifics of the different ways he says you should go about this. It's basically word for word. With one more exception. At the end when he says, if you do this, I'll become weak. And like any other man. If you have an ESV translation, all four of those sentences are the same sentence. But the last one in Hebrew is ever so nuanced differently. He's going to use a different word. So it's actually he's saying something different that last time. We'll save that for when we get to it. But look at verse 15. We kind of cut to the chase. Because we know he started with the bowstrings, then he goes with the new ropes, then he goes with, well, weave my hair into your loom. He's sleeping for that, and we must assume his hair, if he's never cut it, very long. So you could probably mess with his hair on one end and not disturb him sleeping on the other. But when we get to verse 15, she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak And be like any other man. Now here's where we can do some work. And start asking some questions. But. A lot of times we have our hands full. In doing such a thing. Trying to determine. And specifically what I want to look at is. And he told her all his heart. What do you suppose is tucked away in a statement like that? Is it just the piece of information that she doesn't know? The secret? Or is there more to it than that? This man's a loner. We've seen his sort. They keep things to themselves, bottled up. Is there more than just this secret? Is this an unloading? Is this where he finally tells her all his heart? He loves this woman. None of the others. I doubt he told much of just a bunch of baloney to the first woman in the chapter. That's how the game's played. This might be very different. So let's think our way through it. Samson's behavior has been at odds through this whole story with his Nazarite vow, such that we might wonder if he ever understood who he was and what he was set apart to be. But at this case, it's obvious. He knows exactly who he is and who he's 
been set apart to be because he tells her since I was born this is Nazarite vow is she Philistine is she Hebrew we don't know we're not told but I suppose he has to explain what that is and specifically about the hair on his head so he knows and in this rare occasion he's very transparent with these things that are very important and precious to him though he acts as if they're useless so putting the whole story together Samson has been in rebellion from the beginning of this story until the point we're reading now. And specifically in rebellion against the very thing he just told Delilah about. His separation unto God and the pieces of this Nazarite vow. From the very beginning with his parents, after we read of his miraculous birth as it were, into chapter 14 where he sees a girl in Timnah of the Philistines, he wants her, get her from me. Samson, this isn't going to work. It doesn't fit with who you are. It doesn't matter. She's right in my own eyes. Get her for me. And then we just keep seeing the stories pile on top of each other. But it seems clear that he never really wanted to fight the Philistines as he was destined to. If you go back and think of all the stories, the way he got into a fight with the Philistines was not because he picked a fight with the Philistines. It's because he had his own personal agenda that was in conflict with the Philistines. We even learned that God had determined to, to find a fence and drive a wedge between these two groups of people. And he's using Samson's foolishness to get that ball rolling. But Samson's not in on this. You know, it, it was the riddle that, that uh, the, the 30 groomsmen he had went to his wife and said, You tell us that riddle or wear out 30 garments. We'll burn your house down if you don't. So he finds out he's been had. Remember when he called his wife the heifer? I know you all talked about that at lunch after that message. Um, so he's settling a bet through a fight that he didn't intend on. Things just kind of got weird. And 30 people died as a result of it. Well, we keep going. From the story as we put it together, Samson is more likely, would rather mix with the Philistines. Go to the Philistine cities. He's back over and across the border all the time. Intermarry with the Philistines. That didn't work out. Party with the Philistines. Use the Philistines with one night stand. He's a better Philistine than he is a Hebrew. And then we learn that he actually loves this one woman, maybe later in his life where some of this is out of his system. But here again, it's, it's tragic because she's selling him out and it's this vow that gets in the way and everything he seems to touch as far as relationships, if they happen to be Philistines, seem to fall apart. And all the while, it's the Spirit of the Lord that's instigating the conflict between Israel and the Philistines. It's the Lord who's seeking out the opportunity against them. And do you remember the part where after they went back to his wife and his father-in-law, who he can't even see anymore, they burned them after the, 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 the fire and all, and the foxes and the tails. And he said, I'll get even with you, and then I'll quit. Right? He's done. Hiding in a cave. And then Judah comes, ties him up, and hands him over to the Philistines. And then he kills a thousand of them. But that wasn't, again, a fight that he started. So what we're looking at here 
is that Samson's a fighter and he did give God the credit for it but nowhere do we read that Samson considers this his fight he never considers himself God's man or Israel's judge it's as if he never wanted it to start with and doesn't that fit with some people that we know with personalities like that you know, the, the, most people, as far as I can see, and maybe you agree with this, are boring people. They have boring lives, boring jobs, boring hobbies. But then there are others that are not boring at all. They've got cool hobbies and cool jobs. and They're in cool movies. Or Some of them you just wonder, if you follow this guy around with a camera, his YouTube page will pay for everything he'll ever want. They're just that type. And they seem to fly much higher than we do but usually if you pay attention there's this grand trade-off involved with that type of personality their flying high is only eclipsed by their ability to sink very low and a lot of times you find these people at the end of a headline as an overdose it's just it's total destruction and ruin usually that's not unlike what we're seeing here with Samson and perhaps Samson wants to be done with all this. This is all speculation. Maybe when he's telling her his heart, he's telling her he can't deal with this anymore. I don't know. We'd be reading into it. But does it fit what we know? We learn from number six. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down if you want to go look at it later. That when a man was finished with a Nazarite vow, the last thing he would do was shave his head. And they'd take the hair and put it into the burnt offering that was part of the end of the, the ceremony and ritual that they would do. In other words, when you're done with your work that you set yourself aside for, the last thing is to shave one's head. This is exactly what happens to Samson. The question is whether or not he's in on this or it was done for him. I would be a little transparent with you. As a kid, listening to Bible stories about Samson, I was a little skeptical of the whole sleeping through, all that abuse the man took, being tied up, uh, maybe the ropes, the loom, I get that, long hair, you probably get that done, but I cut my boy's hair. It's something I've practiced, gotten okay with it. They're happy when I'm done. And it's very cost effective. We've got three boys. And uh, this last time with David, uh, we cut the sides and the back really short. Like uh, my razor short. And that's with a modern razor with five blades in it. And being as careful as I can. But I just don't see how anybody sleeps through that. Now that's what it's said happens. She put him to sleep on her lap. And then after it was done, he awakens as if nothing had happened. Have you ever got a really good haircut short in the summer and you walk outside for the first time? It's air conditioned, isn't it? <laughs> on, the, on the back of your head. I just really wonder. And if I get an opportunity to talk to Samson, did you know that? Did you ask for that? In other words, when all that happened, were you in on it or was it a big surprise to you? 
Were you ready to be done? Was it just a bad night? Was it one of those nights where everything just seemed to run out? The lid's off. Completely transparent with this woman you love who's sold you, but you don't know that. I don't know. But the last word in that sentence that was the same three times and then different the last time. What he had said previous was, if you do this, I'll become weak and be like any other man. And the Hebrew this time is different, though you won't see it in most translations. If you do this, I'll become weak like every other man. What's the difference between any and every? Probably not much. And unless you're really specifically trying to make a point, it might be nothing. But it might be, at this point, he's saying in a different tone of voice, you cut my hair, I'll be like everybody else. No more separation. No more Nazarite vow. No inner conflict between who I want to be and who I'm supposed to be. I'll just be normal. Maybe Samson was done here. We don't know. But it would fit his characteristic and his personality. And whether or not he was, I don't know, matters as far as its application to us. Because I think we're already on a page where we're starting to see similarities in this mirror. There's been plenty of times where I would rather be like anybody else. No more preacher's son. No more the guy everybody pays attention to. I'm sure the same is with you too. You remember the cheer song where everybody knows your name? I always thought, yeah, right. Backward that. Where nobody knows your name. That's why I like the beach. I can go to the beach and go to Food Line and get out of Food Line and not talk to anybody. Right? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Does everybody need a break once in a while? These are things we relate to. Samson's story is becoming very real here. So what is it? Well, we're not sure. But in verse 20, she said, after it's done, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, who had left who? He left the Lord. Same as Gideon talking about the Lord left us. No, Israel left the Lord. Samson's going to go back to the Lord. And then again, that's misleading because the Lord never goes anywhere as far as his children go. No more than you go away when your children walk away. You're still their father or their mother. They're still your children. But what happens here, verse 21, the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. And you almost wish the story would end here because it doesn't get any better. But like a good piece of literature, there's this line here in verse 22 that's one of those end of the episode teasers. You know this is not over, especially when you hear this. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. If that's where his strength is, maybe it'll come back too. 
You might remember watching some of these old movies, Samson, Cecil B. DeMille's. I watched that as kids. And I'd pick that apart too. That's not right. That's not right. Murder, she wrote, shouldn't get stabbed with a spear. She's going to get burnt up later. Um, some of you have seen this. It, that was Samson's wife, Angela Lansbury. Anyway. Um, but here's what's going on. God is beginning to claim this man back to his purpose that he'd been destined for. His hair's growing back. Some argue that he doesn't deserve any help. Usually that's people who don't have a good understanding of their own depravity. But we could ask ourselves the question, do we deserve any of this? Does Israel deserve any of this? Does anybody deserve the grace of God? The answer to that is a resounding no. But through the Bible, Old Testament and New, we see God giving grace where it's not deserved. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they had said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who's killed many of us. 25. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. It's probably good. It's not mentioned what that is. They made him stand between the pillars. Verse 16, this is sad. Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. They're laughing. God's purposes are never ruined. Not by the devil and not by you or Samson or me or anyone else. God's going to have this his way. Even though the Philistines are singing praises, literally, these are songs, they're singing to Dagon, who they think Dagon brought Samson to them, that none of that is true. And the one true God is going to turn the whole thing into a mass grave here in short order. Samson's words that we see in verse 28 are the language of a beggar. And what he has to say is just this once, remember me, look at it. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. As if he knows he shouldn't even have the privilege to ask. He doesn't deserve it. That I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. Two things that got him in the most trouble. He's mad about it. And it's a self-serving prayer. But Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. That's a, quite an accomplishment, but a tragic one at that. And then this is somewhat of a change and it's good then his brothers and his family came and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah his father which means any family problems along the way have been worked out and he judged uh, Israel had judged 20 years so what do we make of all this where do we fit if we're looking into this mirror what do we see 
Number one, these are all pulled right out of the text. They should be obvious to see. You can write them down and go back and look again if you'd like. Number one, we all are prone to rebel against the plan of God that He has chosen for us. In this regard, we're the very same as Samson. We all do this. In that we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we read a story like Samson's, we want to think, well, that isn't me. But it is. And all we need to do is go back to what happened in the garden. If anybody had a chance to get it done, if anybody had a perfect environment, Garden of Eden should have been the place to succeed as a Christian with an afternoon walk with God Himself. And everything they were given, which was adequate and enough, they wanted more and they took it. They rebelled against the plan God had made for them. And it's been the same through all their descendants, even our heroes. Yeah, Moses, he got mad and he struck a rock and he couldn't go to the promised land. Or David, when he should have been out at war, he's looking out over the city and he sees something he should have just turned away from, but... You know the rest of that story. It's Jeremiah seventeen nine is what it is. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Goes for Samson, goes for you, goes for me, goes for your kids. We're all prone to rebel against the plan of God that he's chosen for us. Number two, we all tend to think that our God-given strengths are toys for us to play with. Samson didn't use his gifts for the Lord unless it happened to work out that what he was doing for himself was what the Lord wanted done and a lot of times that's when we'll see success and it puffs us up and isn't this great the Lord is working when really all you're doing is making a big shot out of yourself it happens to be what the Lord had planned in the beginning and at the same time He's receiving glory. You're taking it for yourself. It's the glory war all over again. And like Samson, we often don't seem to realize that our gifts and talents aren't to be given to us for our own amusement, but to serve and care for the good of God's people. Good question to ask here is, when was the last time? Or have you ever? Especially young people. College kids. Lord, I perceive that you've given me something that I'm good at. How can I use that for you? It's yours after all. Does it glorify? Do you feel His pleasure when you're doing what God gifted you to do good and well? It goes the same for older folks or old folks. All of us. Number three, wandering from God's plan will always bring misery, pain, and separation. There's a reason why Samson's story is so sad. And there's a reason why it's so similar to some of ours. And we know exactly when. Usually it's hindsight. And it's always 2020. But times in our life, and I can think through some of my own, where I took gold and I traded it for dirt. And I don't have the time back. And I'm getting older and I'm further away from my parents. Most of this was when I was young and dumb and didn't have... The sense to know, to listen. But there's scars in this. There's misery. There's separation as part of this. 
If you're having fun sinfully, it's going to cost you. Or God's not holy and he's joking in the garden when he says, I'll punish it with death. We don't think that to begin with, but it's true. We make stupid trades. And when we do, we look just like Samson, just maybe not as cool when we do it, right? Number four, a cry for help will never be ignored. And this is God's grace. If God hears the cry of a faithless, foolish Samson from the temple of Dagon, I think if you ask for help, God will hear you too. What do you think? Any of you ever track where your kids are with a thing on your phone? If you don't, you probably should. There's a pen. Where's Samson? Where's this call coming from? Dagon's temple. Led by the hand of a young boy who's about to lose his life too. It's a bad story. But God hears him. One thing was true about Samson. He was always a fighter. He did that well. Sometimes God needs a fighter. If you're God's child, you can't mess up your father's purposes for you. No matter how hard you try, he'll get the glory some way or another. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is the end of the short book of Jude, verse 24 and 5, because it's just the one chapter. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Well, I'm glad there's somebody who's able to keep me from stumbling. I'm good at that. We all are. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And that's the most mysterious Getting in trouble with my daddy here on earth was some of the most excruciating. Just because, uh, run me over with a car, throw me off a cliff. One time my brother said, just shoot me. But don't say you're disappointed in me. I don't even want to think through the disappointment I've brought the Lord. This says to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. We can't ruin this if we're truly His. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. And that deserves an amen. It goes for Samson, it goes for us. And then this last point, and this is just tacked on the end for whatever use it is. We need to get over our surprise at whom God chooses to use for His work. Because He's always going to keep us guessing. He's always going to choose the very thing we wouldn't. And the biggest surprise comes when it's you He's talking about. Because a lot of us, I think, relate best to Samson not wanting anything to do with anything God would choose. That, that, that's His business. That's His work. I'll mess that up. I'm not your guy. I mentioned to you uh, earlier that Judges is of specific interest to me because it was one book that I studied at Word of Life right out of high school when I was more confused as a young person than I'd ever been. And I didn't know what to do. And everybody thought I was going to do what my daddy did and I would make sure they knew that was not what I was going to do because he's him and I'm me and it's just, it won't work. And then there's this other thing that I never told anybody about. I would rather have a root canal than stand in front of people and talk. 
it was just, it was it was petrifying. Uh, last Sunday night, my daughter gave testimony, and I was proud of her. I told her that later, and I thought I would mention first time I did that in front of a church, I cried because I was embarrassed, and I was seventeen. That's how bad it was. But at the end of a week of listening to this man from Chicago explain the book of Judges, the only thing that I could do at the end of it is say, Lord, I'm, I've got no excuse. I'm as messed up as they are. And if you can use messed up, then okay. You've got a lot of work to do because I'm, I'm scared to talk in front of people. You'll have to fix that. But I told him, all right, I'll do whatever. But up until then, I'd live saying, no, I'll figure this out because you don't know how I feel. And uh, there's plenty of other guys you can choose to do this and they'll, they'll do it better. That's his business. Get over your surprise at whom God will choose to do his work. Whether it's your kid or you or the person that you know when they were younger and you know what they were into. It doesn't make sense that way. Let God be God. And you be quiet. That's usually the best way to do it. At the end of a story like Samson, it's easy to be quiet. Might even need to close the jaw. It's a dramatic story. But it speaks, it communicates. And right on a level where I think we live every day. So let's praise the Lord for it. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven... We thank you for a simple service, gathering of your people, singing hymns, welcoming new members, discussing plans for the future, and studying your timeless, almighty word that speaks to us today as if it was this morning's newspaper. Lord, flatten us out if you need to. But help us unlearn the things we think we've got figured out that don't fit with your plan. And use us for your glory. Because you're worthy of it. That's why you made us. As amazing as that thought may be. Thank you again. We ask all this in your name. Amen.